You're listening to P-R-O-X. I was fresh out of film school, bro. I was probably close to 200 grand in debt. You know what I mean? You know, trying to make a movie in Oakland. It was nuts, bro. But but it's like that thing, like, and that's kind of how I've always operated, which is almost like a a naive audacity. Yeah. You know, like, not really knowing what I'm getting into. Totally. I'm I'm just going to jump because (laughs) I feel something. I feel something really in my bones, you know? Today, we have a very special episode. Directors and Proximity co-founders Ryan Coogler and Pete Nix sit down to talk about directing fiction and nonfiction films. They answer some listener questions and share insights on collaborating on Proximity's latest releases, directed by Pete and produced by Ryan and our partners. Stephen Curry, Underrated, a remarkable coming-of-age story about one of the most influential, dynamic, and unexpected players in basketball history. Out now on Apple TV Plus and select theaters. And Anthem, a musical journey across the U.S. experimenting to reimagine the national anthem. That's streaming now on Hulu. By the way, Pete and Ryan met on Ryan's first feature film, Fruitvale Station, which was released in theaters 10 years ago this month. Their conversation starts there. I'm Peter Nix. I'm a producer and director of documentary films and one of the co-founders of Proximity Media, and I, and I run our nonfiction division. I'm Ryan Coogler. I'm one of the founders of Proximity Media, and I'm a writer, director, producer of motion pictures, and I'm here with uh, my good friend Pete Nix. Ryan, I was trying to remember how we met. There's some controversy over this because I can't. <laughs> I'm getting old, so I forget stuff. Yeah, me too, bro. Like I, I have a memory of meeting you at a at a cafe or a restaurant. I know Michelle Turner Sayayo, who used to run the, the Kenneth Raynan Foundation for for the San Francisco Film Society, was who linked us up. And my memory of of meeting you was like across a table with either food or coffee. My memory is different. <laughs> my my, because <laughs> I I just tie it to the waiting room. I just remember we were. At a theater, I believe it was the Kabuki in San Francisco. Yes. And I mean, this was like my first sort of independent films. And I remember you there. Yeah. I feel like we met before that. We did. I feel like Michelle told me about your movie and she linked us up. And I think we were linked before I saw your film. I think. I think you're right. Yeah. So The Waiting Room is the first in a a trilogy of films, uh, all of which are now streaming on Hulu, The Waiting Room. Homeroom and The Force. I made The Waiting Room because my wife, Vanna, that was, you know, her first job out of grad school as a speech pathologist was working at Highland Hospital. And, you know, the stories that she brought home about her patient population inspired me to want to tell the story. It's, it's a yeah. heavy movie. It's also beautiful. There's yeah. a lot of beauty. Yeah. There's a lot of beauty in that. And one of my favorite reviews of it said something like, I wish it would never end. You know, oh, wow. Yeah, these yeah, little yeah. anecdotes, these yeah. moments of yeah. humanity where you're, you're sort of dipping into these moments where everybody's joined together in this sort of common yeah. Yeah. experience. Yeah. No, no, for sure. I remember CJ, the nurse. Yeah, CJ. Yeah. I remember taking her to the audition for Fruitvale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy, man. Yeah. Yeah. She was so nervous. Man, she was nervous, bro. I was like, CJ, like, just be yourself. Like, I couldn't believe how nervous she was, man. I was thinking because she had done it with the with the documentary camera, 
she'd be good. Well, you were blown away by her just being her just being in her. a documentary. Yeah. And I think you were casting, you, you needed a, a cast a nurse. I needed, the, uh, I needed a nurse at the Hospital. I remember distinctly, I don't remember the exact model, but you had this like kind of like truck. The car I had? Yeah. It was a Ford Explorer. And you were driving around and you, you seemed to me, I was trying to like figure you out. Because <laughs> you seemed like totally like scattered and like over committed. That's funny. And I was like, does this guy like have it together? Has he got control over the situation? <laughs> I wasn't completely sure. But I remember we were pulling up to Highland and I was talking about a lens or something. I said something and you corrected me and you were, cor you were right. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, okay, this guy, he's like, he's like a little bit of a geek, a nerd, like a gear nerd. And that's what I knew. Oh, that's what I knew. Like, okay, I gotta keep my eye on this yeah. guy. I think both things, both things were true, bro. I was definitely in over my head on that movie. And especially at that time, because the reason that we got introduced, Michelle Tanasayeo, who was supporting emerging filmmakers out of the Bay Area, her and the program had been very generous with grants for Fruitville, you know? And I run into a little bit of static trying to get access to Highland Hospital. And then she said, yo, a filmmaker we've supported, who's great, Pete Nix, you need to meet him. He's, he just finished a film right. about Highland. And I was asking away, asking away, and I got denied. And I remember, like, in a, in a, in a sec, we were sitting in the, in the office of the president of, of the hospital. Right, right, Lasseter. Yeah. Yeah. And, we, and you kind of, like, kind of laid it off for him. Hey, this is what's going on. And then he was like, like let, me, let me try to get this done for you. All of a sudden, we just had, like, we had the green light to whatever we needed in the, in the hospital. It was fantastic. You know, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, I didn't, I, I was just following my instincts and just trying to, like, you know, make connections. After Wright met you, he, he was, like, moved by you. I think he read the script. Right, right. He met you. And he told me, I don't know if I ever, I ever told you this, but he said that you reminded him of himself as a young man. Oh, that's crazy. He had aspirations, you know, and obviously at that time he was, you know, the head of the CEO of this hospital. Now, now he's gone on to, to lead huge hospital systems. And he was moved by, you know, seeing a reflection of himself in, 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 in you. And I think that had a lot to do with, you know, why he uh, said yes. That's incredible. The reason it's hard to actually go back and figure out when it, when when the time was that we met, for one, it's been a while, but 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 for two, it feels like it feels like we got close quick, you know, in a, in a, in a way where where things start to blur. Yeah. Well, I think I, what happened to me, which is I think what happened to a lot of people, was they they saw a spark or or, or something in authenticity in you, and I, and I remember. Um, each person I introduced you to sort of had that same reaction. And, you know, my feeling about it was a little bit like rights, which was like, you know, I had a lot of these aspirations when I was younger, but my life was a mess, you know. It took me, you know, a long time to sort of work through a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. But when I was your age, um, I think you were 26 at the time that we met. Mm -hmm. You know, I was... You know, not long out of prison, I was just sober and I was trying to sort of, you know, get my life together. And so I think uh, there's some there's some kind of vicarious yeah. thing that was that was happening yeah. there that I I was drawn to your, you know, potential. I was drawn to your, you know, 
your wit, your your creativity. I saw a short film that you did, Locks, which to this day it's one of the most. I was crying, you know, watching that that short, which was a you know about you know a brother in solidarity with his younger brother who had cancer, shaving his hair off, you know. Mm-hmm. But the way that you laid it out and the misdirection and the the mood and the setting, it was just beautiful. And and I knew at that point I was like, however I can help this guy, you know, achieve what he's trying to achieve, uh, I'm there. Mm. I appreciate that, man. But I, I felt the same way with the, when I saw when I saw the wedding room. Like, you know, and we connected on a lot of different levels. But I think the 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 big thing for me was just like, you know, I was at a time where I needed a lot of help just in general. I was, I think we met, I might've been sharing a room with my baby brother with Keenan, trying to mount this movie. That was the biggest I had ever done at the time. But it also had a lot of pressure on it in terms of representing the Bay Area, representing a person's life, you know, family. And I, I was definitely, I think you were picking up on me kind of being in over my head, me trying to grasp and, and get my life together at the same time. But it was actually nice to have something to focus on, you know, and, and something that could bring me in contact with other people who were actually doing it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and by doing it, I mean just executing on their vision, you know, executing on getting these ideas that they have made, be it a, a program to help support independent filmmakers or having an idea to, to make a film about the waiting room and at this particularly impactful hospital in Oakland. You know, it kept me it kept me going in, in, in many ways, man. But I was fresh out of film school, bro. I was probably close to 200 grand in debt. You know what I mean? You know, trying to make a movie in Oakland. It was nuts, bro. But, it, but it's like that thing, like, and I, that's kind of how I've always operated, which is almost like a, a naive audacity. Yeah. You know, like, not really knowing what I'm get, getting into. Totally. Like, I'm, I'm just going to jump because <laughs> I feel something. I feel yeah. something really in my bones, you know? Yeah. And I felt that the first time. You know, I didn't just make the waiting room. You know, Vana works there. And uh, she, you know, she's a refugee from Laos. And she would come home with stories about her patient population. And I just immediately understood that there was a story to be told here. Not fully understanding because I'm not, you know, I wasn't born and raised in the Bay. But, you know, I've lived here since 97. So now it's my adopted second yeah. home. I lived Probably here Probably been here longer than anywhere else. Than anywhere else. Yeah. But it, there was an instant recognition you know, for me, for my own story, for sort of, you know, raising my kids and sort of what, what that, the reflection. And I remember when I was at Howard, my roommate, Ed Parks, was from Bakersfield. We decided to drive out from, from D.C. To, to, and I'd never been out to California before. And he's like, we're going to stop through Oakland. Right, right. And I remember feeling like, like it, it had this vibe like, ooh, Oakland. Right. And um, it's so interesting to, to think back. To, to that moment because my my perception of it was I think what a lot of people's perception of it which was oh is the city it was dangerous yeah. it was like off the grid it yeah. was you know um, st- stereotyped misunderstood yeah and that always stuck with me and and when I first started getting to know the folks at Highland not just the staff there CJ and Wright and everybody but like the patients mm-hmm. many of whom were you know, not stereotypical. There were like, you know, white folks who just lost their job. There were, you know, people in bands. There were entrepreneurs. But yeah, there were also drug addicts. There were homeless people unhoused. There mm-hmm. were um, people who were having a really rough, rough go at it. Mm-hmm. People had just pissed on themselves. And every conversation I had was a revelation. And that really sparked it. That really sparked it for me. 
and when I met you, it was like you were coming at it like from a, from a different angle, you know, that I'd never seen before. And that's that got kind of fascinated me because because mm-hmm. I'd never really done fiction or sort of work through that process of rendering, you know, an idea or a theme. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, you know, Oscar was a person, flesh and blood, he was a story, he's somebody that we had all, all heard about. Um, and I didn't know at the time that he was, was born, born at, at, at Highland. I, I found yeah. that out later. And CJ actually told me that. Wow. Because yeah. she, remembered, she remembered when he was born. Wow. And I remember her telling me that, and I was just like blown away by that. Yeah. No, no, I didn't know that either. I didn't know that he had been born there. Um, till his mom told me when I was uh when I was interviewing her for research, she shared that and I was like, oh man, that he was born and, and ended up passing away in the same place. He wasn't from Oakland, but he was Oscar was from Hayward, you know. So it was interesting that that he was for him to have been born and passed away in Oakland. I thought it was, was it made more sense to shoot the film there, right? You know if that makes sense, right? How old was uh, Oscar when he passed away? We were effectively the same age. He was murdered in the first day of 2009, I believe. You know, so he'd have been like, I think he'd have been like 22 years old. Yeah, 22 years old, if my math is, if my math is right. And, and you talk about getting sober when you were 25. Me, you know, you met me when I, I was 26, just getting a chance to, to make a film for the first time, feature film for the first time. So for me, it was, it was always something that I, th- that I thought about a lot. You know, what if somebody took my life when I was 22, you know? Um, how much would I not have had a chance to accomplish? How much did I, would I not have known about what type of person I was going to end up being? And that, that in many ways motivated me to, in terms of like finding a theme for the film, you know, this theme of self-discovery, self-determination, you know, the, the, the whole film. He's trying to figure out what, what kind of guy he's going to be. And that's something that the film kind of taught me, that idea that every, you know, every day you, you kind of get an opportunity to choose what type of, you know, what type of person you're going to be today, you know? How, how did you know how, in, in terms of, communicating that theme of that feeling mm-hmm. that, that you wanted the audience to have or how you wanted the audience to relate to yeah. Oscar, to his family. Yeah. Like it being your first film, like how do you know it's going to work? Like, or how do you know? You don't, man. <laughs> yeah, you don't. You never know. Each time I made something, I don't know if it's going to work, you know? I got more confidence in your movies than I got on my own. Like when you say, hey, I'm going to make Anthem, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. Peace, you got it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> or underrated. But like for myself, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, usually pretty like, pretty unsure, you know. Because you're relying not just on your words, like the script, you're relying yeah. on like, you know, actors, you're, yeah, you're relying a on a cinematographer, you're a lot relying of variables. on, you know. Yeah, it was things where, it was so many unknowns in terms of just my cast and crew. What I try to do is like focus on what I do know and like what my strengths are, focus on that and then focus on the weaknesses. Like 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 put, put the energy on those things. And what I knew with Fruville was that I knew I wanted it to be a one-day movie. It's a long history of one-day movies being really good, uh, really effective. So I knew that, and the, and the more research I did, the more it made sense, because it was a lot of a lot of irony in, in that day, in the, in the truth of it. So I was sticking to that. So what I what I did was I I found every one-day movie that that I, that I could find that was good, you know, and I tried to find the common things that they did in those movies. That seems like an obvious thing, but I, that was one of the fir- first things actually that you taught me, or that, that that I realized that you you really focused on was comps, like movies, like comps, yeah, movies yeah. that um, like what is what what's in the zone, yeah, of, of this, yeah. The comp thing is helpful for studio speak. It's helpful for people who don't process film language like a filmmaker. Their relationship with the language is audience, you know. 
very comps are very helpful for those type of people. Like you say, oh, it's this mixed with that, mixed with this, and they get it better than they would if you gave them a, a deck. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? I try to find comps for for the making side of it. You know what I mean? Like for the structural side of it. You'll find that with all makers, right? People who make clothes, they're looking at, you know, what clothes work that inspire them. What are they trying to do? Chefs, right? It's a great episode of The Bear. I don't know, like, like uh, it's been the second season. Well, I mean, it's not a spoiler, bro. Like, like, it's, okay. like, it's an episode where the chefs, they got to go eat food all over all over the place just to, just to. Yeah, it's like Anthem. Like the process of making something. You know what I mean? You got you to gotta be, it's not enough to just be an expert in the craft overall. You got to kind of like make yourself an expert in the, in the exact thing that you're doing. There's something extra. I love to cook, but I'm a terrible cook. Too. I mess stuff up. Like, like yeah. the first two or three times me yeah. cooking something, you gotta it's make kind of bad a disaster. Pancakes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like with a movie, there's a lot more at stake. I guess you could mess it up, but like Yeah, but this ain't your first movie though. Like, you know what I'm saying? You several movies in. The first things you ever tried to make were probably bad. You know, like I that's been my experience, you know. You get gets philosophical, like what's your first film, because you kind of tell stories. Yeah. And you, to yourself and in, in, in different ways, right? I think that's how totally. kind of you got launched on your career. I think you were was it at St. Mary's or you were in a class or you were writing yeah. something and one of your professors was like, hey, I had a, uh, I had a credit writing assignment. Yeah. And, 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 this um, is not bad. Yeah. She was like, yo, you should write screenplays, you know, from, from, from some pros that I wrote. But, but what's crazy, Pete, is like, I tell that story because it's the truth. But I got homies I grew up with who had to remind me that whenever we would have like a class assignment, I would try to do a movie for it. I forgot about this. This would be like, like, you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. You know what I'm saying? I didn't own a camera. It was my boy who had a camera who had to tell me, hey, you would always partner up with me. We would make a movie. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, oh, yeah, we, I did used to do that. <laughs> you know it just didn't click. You know, I like, did. You were already on your journey. Bro, I forgot about it. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, like, like yeah. honestly. Yeah. Same thing with me. I forgot. It was when I made my first technical film, The yeah. Wolf, my autobiography. Yeah. I had all this footage of me when I was 12. Right. Of me doing the Pete Nick show at my family reunion, <laughs> interviewing like all my family members. I was like, oh shit. See? Like, this is, that's where it began. Jumping ahead, you know, it's basically like eleven years after we met, and you were you were talking about opening uh, the waiting room, you know, which I know had a theatrical release and played at some major festivals. But we on the we 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 sitting here right now, you know, having been running a company for some years now, and, and this is a year where you releasing two movies that you that you directed back to back. Anthem, which is on Hulu now, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival a few weeks back. And it's out now. Anyone who has access to Hulu, who has a Hulu subscription, can watch the film. And I'm getting text messages from people who are watching it at, at different times and, and being moved by it. And we also are, are, you know, a few weeks removed from, you know, what I think will be our biggest release on something that we worked together, which is uh, underrated, the Stephen Curry story. That is coming out on Apple Television Plus, as well as a limited theatrical release you know, about the best shooter that ever played a game of basketball. 
what, what, what's it like, man? Like, like you know, having that that breadth of styles of work, you know, in, in such a, in such a limited time. I'm learning, you know. You know, it's funny. We first started working together actually on the Force when I was making the second film in my trilogy because, again, going back to my kind of naive audacity, <laughs> like just jumping into stuff I maybe didn't have any business doing. You were one of the first people I, I called, and I was like, hey, man, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this film. Well, I wasn't thinking. I had already gotten access, yeah. and I think I, ca I called you up. And, you know, you gave me a very sobering kind of insight into your feelings about the police, your relationship with, with the OPD, and you were, you were worried about me. And that really began our, our sort of collaborative, because I was paying very close attention to what you were saying, whether you know it or not, a lot of that found its way into the movie. Right. It was a very difficult thing that I was trying to do, which was yeah. step into a police department without, you know, an agenda, without passing judgment, and just sort of try to document this department trying to change. Right. And I'll never forget, you said the police department's functioning just the way it's supposed to. You know, that, that the problems that are inherent in the police are built into the history of going back to slave patrols. Yeah. And that, that always stuck with me. And that really, you know, that, that carried over, obviously, into homeroom when I decided to sort of, I always knew education was going to be the third piece in the, in the trilogy. Right. I think this was before you approached me about sort of proximity, but I, I, but I wanted you to be involved yeah. in, in, in some way. And then that, that sort of just sort of dovetailed. But it was like this notion of when you're an independent, especially a documentary filmmaker, and you, you know, you definitely experience this too with, with Fruitville. You're just scraping for every little buck you can, you can get, totally. trying to raise money, trying to hustle. Nobody really knows who you are. Yeah. The notion of having, you know, support is powerful. And at the time, you know, flash forward to when Homeroom was coming out, you had made, you know, Creed, you had made Black, Black Panther, mm -hmm. you know, the idea of sort of collaborating alongside you gave me a ton of energy, gave me a lot of energy, but also the recognition that what we were doing wasn't so different. No. You know, in, in terms of the themes that we explored in our work and the stage from which we told our stories from in the Bay and, yeah. and how those found our, its way into the characters and the, the ideas just felt natural to me. So yeah, I was just, you know, grateful and obviously when we met and you you approached me about proximity, we had, we had lost my daughter, Karina, who you who you knew really well, and you know I don't think I would have said yes to any anyone else who would come calling from Hollywood. No offense to Hollywood, you know that was a, a big reason, you know why, you know that felt comfortable for me. When I'm going through a difficult time in my life, I turn to sort of the things that sort of energize me and and storytelling, filmmaking, right, is one of those things where I'm going to be learning for the rest of my life, right. Right. I kind of agree with you more in terms of how much our, our work had in common, man. Like, I, like that was never lost on me. And, and at wedding, I remember, I remember, you know, I remember seeing this in, in, in the film. You enabled them to, to claim their humanity just by being, just by being honest with the camera, being honest with you. And for me, that was what it was always about, proclaiming humanity for people who are often denied it, you know, very often through media, they're, they're denied it, stripped of it. You know, you, you did it again with, with the trilogy each time. You're looking at these things and, and it might be stories that you would dismiss or write off through the language of cinema, often cinema verite, you, you invite the audience, let's look a little deeper at this. Let's look a little deeper at this, at this system. Let's look a little deeper at 
these next generation. You know what I mean? And everybody's, everybody's ready to write off, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> it's so weird, like the coincidences, but you know, The Wire, uh, you know, love it or hate it or ambivalent, it had an influence on me in terms of looking at an American city. How could it not? And sort of how all these systems were, were connected. I remember the first, um, one of the first people that I met at Highland was a young girl. She had been shot outside of Edna Brewer mm. when she was 12. And she wasn't in, she wasn't in school, you know, getting her education and dreaming big. She was stuck in the waiting room at Highland Hospital getting treatment for a gunshot wound. And that's when I began thinking about sort of the, the connections, you know, between the agency of, of a young person, the agency of a community, and how the systems connect to that, whether it's the healthcare system, access to healthcare, criminal justice system, yeah. education system. And how that trilogy unfolded in, in, in ways that were surprising. Homeroom was supposed to be, wasn't supposed to be about a group of kids removing police from their schools to reallocate the money, to basically defund the police. It was supposed to be a, a film about the emotional lives of young kids of color, like my kids. Mm-hmm. And I grew up watching The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and uh-huh. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. These yeah. were my favorite movies growing up. Right. These were all white kids in the suburbs. Right, you know? right. And I wanted to sort of step into that space in, in, in Oakland. And what happened, happened. You know, like the, the pandemic broke out. You know, we lost Karina. There was so much loss that was happening. And in the, in the wake of that, these kids found their voice. And I could not help but think about sort of Oscar and think about what, you know, this, what these kids are doing represents what was lost. Yes. You know, and that's why we tell these stories. And yes. so that, that, that sort of connection was really profound. Yes. I think now I'm, I'm evolving, you know, and I still have a strain of my intention. I, I, I want to go hang out, you know, and with people who might be quote unquote vulnerable. Right. But, you know, I think we have an opportunity to sort of expand sort of the, the, the notions of storytelling. And you think about Steph Curry and I remember when you first came to me about this idea, yeah, it was I I had to pause on it to be honest because it's like celebrity. This is the exact opposite of the work that I've been doing. Yeah, you know this guy is anything <laughs> but vulnerable. Yeah, but there was something about the more I thought about his story, the more I thought about his connection to to the Bay, and you know the more I learned about sort of you know even though he was the son of Del Curry, he grew up privileged kid. He he faced a lot of doubt, people sort of not believing that he could do it, people yeah. not really validating him. And he had to find a way of, of pushing beyond that. And that that sort of clicked for me that, man, there's a, there's a way that we can tell these stories in a big way. They're going to engage audiences. Yeah. I, I, I call it the Trojan horse. And I think you did this brilliantly with, with Black Panther, because I tell the story more than once. I've told this story uh, when I was in Utah, when Karina was uh, in treatment in Utah, mm-hmm. we saw Black Panther mm-hmm. in a theater full of white Mormons <laughs> watching Black Panther. And to me, that was like, talk about, you know, subversive. Yeah. Uh, that's powerful. <laughs> Trojan horse. And uh, even, you know, what you do with Creed and perspective, mm-hmm. reimagining the Rocky franchise, which I think, you know, Stallone was ready to shut that down. And you reimagined it and you pitched your perspective. So that that's really powerful. And that, that I think, uh, what I'm hoping to do with, with, with our nonfiction slate is to sort of take that, so that spirit and that ethos and, yeah. and, you know, get as many people as we can 
sort of engage in these ideas and, you know, yeah. maybe sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. But it's all it's always bold ideas, Pete. And the ideas always contrast in an interesting way. It's the, it's there in the in the, in the trilogy that's set here in Oakland. But but it's also there in, in Anthem and it's there in it's there in underrated. Just inside of Steph, his story is all this contrast. You know, it's all of this unknown things that you gotta kinda look closer at. At that that idea of, of self doubt and the voice that's in your head. That idea of, cause that, cause that film, underrated is is it's about Steph, but it's it's really, I think it's like an intergenerational love story. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's him and his coach, him and his college coach, who in that film is a person who believes in him and doesn't have any reason to to know ulterior motives. You know what I'm saying? Like just, y'all, I believe you can be a great basketball player for this team. You know, I believe we can help each other, and that that was all all that guy needed. It seemed, you know what I'm saying? Like 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 at, at the point that he was at. He saw himself, you know. Yeah. It's the same thing with Wright, Wright Lasseter. When he yeah. met you at Highland and he saw, you know, a younger version yeah. of himself, he wanted to help you. And, you know, yeah. Co- Coach McKillop, very similar story. He was a undersized, scrappy player. Yeah. Had to fight, had to, you know, take, you know, take what's yours. Yeah. You know, when you're the underdog, you have to take what's yours. Yeah. And that, that mentality. And so when he saw Steph, he recognized it. And that's exactly... Right, like the way you describe it, like this intergenerational or this sort of different aspects of family or, yeah, or mentorship. Totally. And, and the Davidson community itself is part of that story as a reflection to some degree of the Bay. Yeah. How the Bay is kind of misunderstood, under underrepresented. Totally, so, totally. All I mean, those I'm, themes were strong, came came through very strong. Yeah, that, that underrated, you know, and that, and that question about how can, how can this dude, you know, who's got all these championships, all of these accolades and came from this family, how, how can he be underrated? And the film answers the question. You know, I'm proud to be a part of it. You know, I can't wait for people to see it and be moved by it. And I'm glad it's getting a theatrical release too, because it's a, it's a we, we saw it at Sundance. Man, it's a movie for a crowd. Oh, it's you know? fun. Like it's, it's yeah. fun with the crowd. It's fun with the it's, crowd. It's great. And I love it because I'm a. I, I feel like I'm underrated, man. Docu- documentary filmmakers totally. for years. I've been telling people totally. documentaries. They're under marketed. The, there's an audience for them. People love them. Yeah. But we're always scraping. You know, trying to get. You know, every little bit of attention, every yes. little dollar of marketing dollar. So I actually, you know, deeply related to that on a personal level. But I also knew that, you know, this was a universal idea that many of us at some point in our lives have had that moment where we've been misunderstood or whatever. And also, you know, for those of us who have achieved great things. Yeah. That you can usually find someone in your life that's oh, not yeah. a parent, yeah, like a teacher, coach, mentor, somebody who's who's made that difference. It's been several for me. You know, we talked about it, like you know, with, with my professor Rosemary Graham from St. Mary's College, and it was there with Forrest Whitaker. You know, me and Nina Yang Bonjovi with our production company take the chance on on you and this story. Um, it was there with you. You know, you could have, you, we could have, we could have, we could have met whether it was at the screening or at, whether it was getting coffee. <laughs> we could have met and you could have said, yeah, you know, good luck, kid. You know, yeah. but you didn't. You said, I want to help you. Let me help get, get you access. Let me get you, you know, what you, what you may need. And something that we glossing over, that the ending of the film that we shot after we were accepted into Sundance was shot at, at the Fruitvale Bar Station um, at the event that they do every year, you know, in, in Oscar's memory. And, and we, and I wanted to capture it. You know, to end to end the to end the film, like on an update, and and, and you, Paulo, Karina, y'all came out. You know, <laughs> boom, pause. <laughs> I think that was equipment. The first time I met producer Sev. Yeah, that was the first time you met Sev. Yeah, he's like Pete, Pete. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it was like total total <laughs> Sev. He's yep. like, yeah, we're gonna shoot. Can, yep. can you get? The, can you? Uh, I was yeah, like, absolutely, man. But I loved this is before Zinzi and I were married. 
you know, before we were parents. I love how you pull up in the car with your kids, bro. It was like, yo, this is my, my boom pop right, right here. This is my, <laughs> my, my gaffer, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yo, I love this dude, man. Like, what you don't know is I'm looking around trying to figure out, like, what my life is going to look like in, in, in five years, 10 years. And it's crazy job. I'm asking myself, yo, can I have a family and do this? You know what I'm saying? And here you are pulling up. And your, you know, your kids bounce off with you. They holding the equipment. You're like, hey, yo, I'm like, oh, yeah, this, this. I'm like, yo, I, I could... I, I could do this, you know, what I mean? you know what I mean? Like, it was great. And yeah, we shot it, man. We shot it, so we got some really moving material. And it made a lot of sense for the film, made the film better. And I was, that was kind of our first time really working together. That was my first time kind of seeing you in the, in the field in action. You're right there at the bar station. Was special, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, but it was great, man. Yeah, I think people really in for a treat with these with these movies, man. Both both Anthem and Underrated. So by the time this episode comes out, Underrated will be out on Apple TV Plus and uh, possibly in theater near you in his limited release? I can't wait. It is kind of a pinch me thing for, for me to have the stage, to have your inspiration, you know, the company, the people that also believe in our company, what we're trying to do, who are being incredibly supportive, the importance of the notion of what we're trying to do, which goes back to that perspective. Right. You know, we talk about not just proximity to often overlook subjects, which is part of what we talk about, yeah, the perspective is really important because right. you can tell the same story. You could put you put an orange on a pedestal, and, and give three filmmakers a camera, tell them to make a film about that orange, and you can get three different films. Hundred percent. You know, they're going to be meaningful in different ways, and I think that's the power part of the power of what um, what you're trying to build here. And so I'm just grateful to add my piece. Man, we lucky to have you, bro. Okay, so at this point in the episode, we're going to play some questions from some listeners out there. And I believe they are about directing, which me and Pete do often. Yeah, probably too much. <laughs> no, it's, I'm, I'm curious. I want, I want to hear these but, questions. We're going to try to answer them. So the first clip is from Dorsey. My name is Dorsey Richmond. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I'm 19 years old. And my question is basically, how do you deal with criticism and dealing with being a perfectionist if you are? Because I think it's easy for people to say, like, who cares what people think? Don't worry about that. And just stuff like that. So I'm curious, as a person, do you take deliberate actions on blocking out the noise? Or, like, what do you do personally or tell yourself? Boy, Dorsey came right into yeah. my world. Because I've just released a film. <laughs> <laughs> I think that anytime you put your heart and soul out there, it's a, an opportunity for growth is what I say, because somebody's going to have an opinion mm -hmm. about that. That that opinion may may not be what you want to hear. It may be the thing, the very thing that you want to hear. But you know, Vana, my my wife, is is the first person I go to whenever I release a movie, and I I've, I've seen like a review that I don't like or. That, that plants that seed of doubt. Did I fuck this up? <laughs> like, did I just spend the last three years of my life, you know? Um, and she she brings me back to the perspective of the intention of, of what you've done. And also a, a reminder that art is going to move and reflect and bounce off of people in different ways based on their own life experience, based on where they've been. Yes. And you cannot 
control that. For me, it's always an opportunity to be mindful and, and remember why I, you know, embarked on, on the endeavor and that, you know, just releasing a movie is not the end. No. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, I became a doctor because I saw the waiting room. I became a cop because I saw the force and I wanted to, you know, try to try to make a difference. I, I became a teacher because I saw homeroom. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. I think that's a, I think that's a brilliant question. There's no one set answer. I think that to be a professional maker of things, you have to be comfortable putting your stuff out there knowing that somebody's going to say things about it that can hurt your feelings. It's a natural part of the process. And there's not one thing that's been made that everybody loves. One thing can't be for everybody, right? I try to make things that have universal themes and, and that can work for, for as many people as I'm trying to reach. You know what I'm saying? And I like things that are going to be consumed by the masses. Those are the things that used to reach me when I was when I was coming up. You know, when you make something that's for the masses, you got to be ready to get a lot of opinions. You know, there's people out there whose job it is to give opinions. And a lot of times when somebody like that comes down on what you're doing in a way that you maybe don't agree with, it can affect you. But that said, ruminating on people's negative comments about your stuff is unhealthy for you. You know, you got to find a way to step away and protect your own mental space, your own health, so that you can continue to do work that's honest, so you continue to live a healthy life. But up until release, you know, criticism is, I think, you know, really helpful. And it can be helpful after release as well. But I think that going and finding people who can give you that honest opinion about your work, that can be incredibly valuable. And I think Pete's right, you know, about intention. You got to always remember, keep in mind what your intention is. What are you trying to do? Like, who are you trying to reach with this film? What are you trying to say? And I think as long as you're bearing all those things in mind, I think you can move with some purpose. All right. Our next clip is from Harlem. Uh, my name is Harlem Banks. Uh, I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up on Stanford's campus. Um, I'm a freshman at NYU um, in the film and television production program. And I was wondering how you balance between uh, like creative output and creative input. Um, because I'm trying to do a lot of writing and uh, make short films and get a lot of work done. But at the same time, um, I want to keep my well full and I want to uh, read a lot. And um, yeah, so I was just wondering how to balance between like writing and, and making things and reading. Oh, man. Input is so important. Before I shoot a documentary, I don't just start rolling the camera. The waiting room, I spent months just hanging out and talking to people without shooting anything. Right. And that input was so vital to me, sort of building a cultural competency, building a familiarity, building trust. It made the movie better. If you're going to be making movies, I think you need to be watching yeah. a lot of movies and find out what turns you on. Like what it's going to give you ideas and you're going to, you're going to copy some of those ideas. You're totally. going to make some of those ideas your own. You're going to totally. innovate, you know, so that input is, is so important. Yeah. It sounds like you in, in school right now in Harlem, but I'll tell you, man, now is the time to just like spend every waking hour, you know, you should either be sleep, reading, watching, or making. You know, making includes being on set and writing. Because I can tell you as a man approaching 40, it don't get easier. You'll get other commitments, you know what I mean? Uh, spouse, children, responsibilities, your windows will shorten. So I think right now is a time where you just, you know, be almost religious about it. I remember when I was in film school, man, I spent all my money at the Arclight Hollywood. I was watching whatever had just come out. If I liked it, I was watching it twice, three times, four times, trying to get to the bottom of why I liked it. 
if you're hoping to produce art for an audience, you know, you kind of got to stay up on what the audience is taking in so that you can have a shot at speaking the language that's current. And diversify. Don't just like absorb the obvious thing. Really try to force yourself to open your input. You want to be a filmmaker. Don't just watch films. Nah. You know, expose yourself. If you're mindful, your goal is to become a filmmaker. All of those experiences are going to sort of, you know, be in sort of your subconscious. The, the other thing I, I love to do, and I miss doing this, man, with the pandemic, I always like to just kind of go sit and just listen to people talk. You know, we call it ear hustling where I'm from, but just listen to how people talk to each other. One of my favorite things is like, in New York, it's great for this, but like the randomized conversations. Like when you just catch a snippet of what somebody's saying when they're when they walking by. Sometimes it's so interesting, you know what I mean? I, that happens to me all the time. Yeah. And I'm saying, oh, that'd be a great piece of dialogue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Prox Rex segment, I'm going to recommend a movie called Hearts of Darkness, a behind-the-scenes film about the making of Apocalypse Now, directed by Eleanor Coppola. She's just documenting the process that Francis was going through, you know, trying to write and direct Apocalypse Now. It's a beautiful film. And I always like watching it because as a filmmaker, you, you know, maybe never be as good as, as Francis Coppola, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but you've seen him just really, really struggle, you know, and it's a reminder of, of how hard it is but also like, the, you know, the film that they made is, is, is pretty fantastic. I'm a cinema verite guy. I, I love cinema verite. There's a film that I, I often talk about, which is the one that got me, that, you know, Hoop, Hoop Dreams is the one I, I usually talk about, but today I'm going in a different direction and we're going to go Paris is Burning. This is a 1990 documentary direct, directed by Jenny Livingston. It was, it was about a community that was often overlooked. It's a very proximity kind of idea, beautiful rendering, of humanity, surprising, intimate, in there, authentic. And I, I recommend, if you haven't seen it, definitely go check that out. Thank you, Pete, for joining this episode. Thanks, Paula, for setting it up. And thank, thank you all for listening. So uh, Ryan Cooper signing off. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for inspiring me and helping me grow and leading the way. In Proximity is a production of Proximity Media. If you like the show, be sure to follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends and loved ones to do the same. Go on, send a link to someone who you think might really like this conversation. And be sure to watch Stephen Curry Underrated on Apple TV Plus or select theaters. And stream Anthem on Hulu. Learn more and read transcripts of this episode and others at proximitymedia.com. Don't forget to follow at Proximity Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. The show is produced by me, Paula Mardo. Executive producers are Ryan Kugler, Zinzi Kugler, Sevohanian, and me. Our theme song and additional music is composed by Ludwig Gornson. Ken Nana is our sound designer and mix engineer. Audio editing for this episode is by Judy Bell Kamangyan, with production assistance from Courtney Archard. Artwork and social media by Alexandria Santana. Special thanks to the whole Proximity Media team and to you for listening to In Proximity. Chefs, right? It's a great episode of The Bear. I don't know, like, like, uh, in the second Which episode? I don't know what number it is, but in the second season,
I'm not in the second season yet, Oof. so we're gonna stop talking right now. You gotta, you gotta get but that. You gotta get I'll, that I'll, done. I'll bro. get back to you with that. You gotta get that done. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs>